the second I realized that you can syndicate a multifamily, you know, hundred plus unit deal and um, bring investors together and, and partner on it. Um, I just grew attached to that, that whole concept. Welcome to the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show, a community for real estate investors to learn, network, and grow. Be sure to join the investnest.com and start learning and earning today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. I'm your host, Travis Murphy, and this is podcast number 20. I'm very excited about today's invest guest. But before we get started, I want to remind everybody to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Invest Nest. Check out theinvestnest.com if you haven't already and create your free member profile and start networking with the other real estate investing members on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. And uh, if you haven't been listening, the, the podcast is a weekly release where we have weekly guests join us, uh, real estate professionals that uh, share their journey with us. And today I'm really excited about our guest. Um, as I mentioned, Jorge Abreu. He is an active and passive uh, investor in the multifamily space. He's got over 1,700 doors on the GP side and 1,400 doors on the LP side. He's also CEO of Elevate Commercial Investment Group, and he has a construction company, JNT, that focuses on uh, multifamily renovations. So he's got a lot of expertise, but uh, we'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. And uh, now let's, let's welcome our guest, Jorge Abreu. Jorge, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. I, I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this podcast for some time. You're a very busy man. You keep, you keep yourself active in the multifamily space, I understand. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Yeah. So um, I've been investing in real estate for about uh, 15 years now, full time. Um, quit my W-2 after I... Uh, started making consistent money and in investing in real estate. Um, in the beginning I was doing mainly single family, then transitioned into some small multifamily until I was introduced to large multifamily syndications. Um, and till, till then, you know, I was, that was about four years ago. So for 11 years, I was working on scaling the single family and the small multifamily, um, started my own construction company and on that journey to all of it was to scale, um, you know, bringing in the construction in-house made it a lot easier to do, uh, the fix and flips. And, um, the second I realized that you can syndicate a multifamily, you know, hundred plus unit deal and, um, bring investors together and, and partner on it. Um, I just grew attached to that, that whole concept. The fact that I had scale just in one property alone, um, something I had been doing for, you know, trying to build for years. Um, so at that point, you know, once I got the education and, and kind of understood the underwriting and, and the fact that you were buying a business, not really, a piece of property, um, you know, both in one, I guess. Um, then, uh, I turned all my focus towards, towards large multifamily deals. Same with the construction company. Um, no longer touch single family and, and just do multifamily now. 
Yeah, I mean that we I talk about that a lot on the podcast. It's it's kind of like that natural progression almost for people that are getting into real estate investing. You know, you start with either single family or really a house hack a lot of the times, um, and then you get maybe a single family or duplex as a rental. You get into fix and flips to kind of fund your acquisitions. And it's all about building that, like you said, that experience and knowledge base to try to get to a point at scale. But when you get into that multifamily space, like you mentioned, uh, it's more of a, you know, an income generating business and an, and an asset in one, but it, it allows you really, because the strength in numbers, it really allows you to scale much quicker. And it's not just you on your own, you're, you're leveraging, you know, financial institutions as well as other investors. Um, Good point. Yeah. to be able to take these types of deals down. So, I mean, for you, I guess, what's, how would you compare the, the, what goes into managing a bunch of single family rentals? Because that's probably what a lot of our listeners are in the midst of right now versus managing um, a large multifamily. I think a lot of people get scared off by the, the concept or the thought of a large multifamily investment. Um, can you share some of the differences that you, you could point out from your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, you kind of nailed it with the, the fact that multifamily is a, a team effort, um, you know, to take down some of these large deals, you, you really need to leverage, um, vendors, partners, et cetera. Um, not so much when you're building a single family portfolio. Um, and it's a lot more, the management side is a lot more hands-on when you're doing the single family. Um, you know, you, you can build um, an in-house property management in a sense, depending how, how many single family homes you have. Um, but there is going to be a rough patch there where you don't have enough and it doesn't make sense. The profits aren't there. Um, same thing with a third party property management company you know, to hire them to do your, your single families. Um, the profits are, you're going to need to scale first to, to be able for that to make sense. Um, so I think that's the big difference. You know, you, when you're doing a hundred plus units, you can afford to hire the on-site staff and, and, um, be a little more, um, just managing the asset versus going and collecting rent. Doing yeah, it's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> it's sure. a lot of work. I mean, even after the fact, you know, the asset management's no joke. You, you've got to be on top of your, your property and, and your projections, um, budget versus actuals, and uh, whether you have in-house or third party, uh, you need to stay on top of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the whole multifamily, whether it's syndication or, or however it's structured, is, it, it fascinates me too. the, you know, the financials behind it and just the, the different ways you can structure things and take, take these types of assets down. Uh, it's, it sounds like you're, you know, fully immersed in this, obviously, and you into all facets of it. So from reading up on you, you, you have units on the GP side, the LP side, you have a, it sounds like you've got a, you're the CEO of a capital investment group, as well as a renovation company that uh, does renovations on multifamilies. So, you, you know, you've got, sounds like you've got all the aspects covered, all the angles covered in this, but I guess explain, if you could explain a little bit how you typically structure your deals and what your active deals look like versus your passive deals. Yeah. Um, 
We also do development projects too. I just want to throw that in there. <laughs> Don't want to leave that out. <laughs> but um, you know, each one is 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 structured uh, differently. Um, there's some that uh, it, it depends on the type of deal, um, the type of returns it's generating. You know, if it's a heavy uh, heavy lift value add, not a ca- not a lot of cash flow. Um, that's going to be structured a little different than something that's cash flowing from day one, more of a management play or, you know, some value add in there. But, um, uh, we've got anything, we've got everything from a 80, 20 split on the GP LP, uh, splits from 30, 70, uh, flipped around, you know, G- right. GP 70 LP 30, um, and everything in between, we've got hurdles, we've got all different types of structures. Um, you know, if you bring in a pref equity partner, then you're most likely going to have hurdles in there. Um, so usually we'll take that same structure and just pass it over to the, the common equity as well. Um, not to overcomplicate the deal. And then, um, as far as myself, you know, I, I started investing passively around the same time that I decided I was going to go active. So uh, I was an LP on a couple deals until I landed my first um, active GP deal. And then, uh, you know, since then I, I invest passively, whether it's in my own deals or um, I still like doing other deals with, with other investors. I think it's a, it's a good way of building relationships. And um, um, yeah, I mean, every year I want to make sure I'm getting that, that depreciation um and not paying that much to taxes <laughs> yeah i think we i think that goes for all of us so there's a lot there and i don't want to confuse uh, all the listeners out there but i think this is an area that interests people so you mentioned you know lp and and uh gp what what's the difference there can you explain us what that what that means explain yeah i'm sorry and i threw out hurdles and all this oh, different that's stuff okay. um <laughs> You know, you, you've got a limited partner and you've got a, a general partner. So the general partner are the ones that are really making the uh, decisions, the, the vision of the property, um, the asset, um, when it's going to refinance, when it's going to sell, um, what, kind of, what type of rents we're trying to hit, who's we're going to hire for property manager, et cetera. And then the limited partners are the ones that are investing funds and they don't really have control of the asset in that sense. Um, you know, they're trusting those general partners to, to do the best thing, um, and generate the the best returns. Okay. Yeah. And then I guess, uh, your hurdles or your promotes are kind of goals or targets that if you can hit financial, certain financial goals or certain financial targets along the way, those equity splits or returns then could change. Is that correct? That's correct. So, you know, these, these aren't um, loans. The investors aren't, uh, it's not hard money loans or anything like that. It's uh, their equity partners in the deal. So then it comes down to, okay, well, how does that equity get split up between the limited partners and the general partners? And um, a lot of different ways you can do that. One is, you know, setting a split saying, uh, limited partners are going to get 70%. General partners are going to get 30% for an, as an example. Um, but if we 
if the general partners are able to hit, let's say a 15% IRR, then once you hit that hurdle, it's going to jump to 50-50. Right. Okay. And that kind of keeps everybody honest, right? So instead of just the general partners telling and promising what they're going to deliver, it, you know, it kind of holds their feet to the fire and not, not only rewards them if they achieve it, but keeps them incentivized to achieve it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps everybody on the same page. Um, in a sense, you know, the, you never want the general partners to get, um, complacent and just, um, you know, not keep pushing mm-hmm. that property. So, yeah. Yeah. I always want to keep the, the best interest of the property, which in turn would be for the investors in mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And so moving on, moving on to another area, um, that sounds like you, you're, very familiar with in the due diligence period or the underwriting process. I know those are two separate things, but you mentioned earlier, you know, you can set the, you can structure the deal up differently, 70, 30, one way or the other, depending on if it's a value add or already cash flowing. How do you, what goes into identifying that and determining which way, which direction to go with any particular potential investment? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to depend on, on how the, assets per performing, um, you know, how it's currently performing, what, uh, how much meat is left on the bone. You know, if you're, if you're trying to acquire a property that's already been hundred percent of the units have been updated. Um, it's on the top of the market rent right now. It's collecting the top. Um, there's not a lot of value add in that deal. Maybe you're able to, get it at a good price, which I'd be surprised right now, the way the market is, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, that would be a cash flowing property. If you can get some good financing, get it at a good price, um, you know, it's probably going to give you some good cash flow, but it's not going to have that big, uh, equity kicker. Once you sell it, um, you're not going to have a re a refinance cash out anything like that. So in that case, you're probably going to give, more to your uh, limited partners. Um, And then another example on the other side of the spectrum is a property that's maybe not even cash flowing right now. And it's uh, way under market as far as the rents hasn't been updated in, in years um, has a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, In that case, you're going to come in and, and reposition that property probably not going to have cash flow for the first year. So the investors need to understand, Hey, this is not a cash flow play, but when we sell this property or even better, you know, if you're able to refi cash out once the, the property's stabilized, um, it's going to have a nice return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, like you said, refinance, you're able to deliver return almost, if not all the capital to the investors to then go and re- repeat the process. So de- determining that play, whether it's a cash flow play off the bat with just more stable returns versus that, you know, more upside potential, which comes with, with maybe a, a higher level of risk. That's all done during, I guess, when you're trying to identify properties and you're underwriting, when you're underwriting the deal to, to evaluate what type of um, investment this is going to look like. To move forward beyond that, once you've made all those determinations, you get to a point where you're under contract then begins the due diligence period. What can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about what goes on there and what, what the due diligence period is? Yeah. So 
you know, before you get there, kind of like you mentioned, at this point, you've, you've done your underwriting, you've made an offer, and it's been accepted. So now you're, you've got a sale agreement, right? And then your due diligence period starts. Um, usually it's about 30 days. And this is the time where you're going to verify everything. You, you want to financially and structurally, you want to verify that everything they're telling you financially is, is true. You want to see um, what type of criteria they've been using to, to get their, the residents, um, uh, what fees they're actually collecting, um, and try to see, you know, what was, is any of the information they presented false? And also you can maybe find some other value add when you do that. And then there's the physical due diligence is when you go and you inspect the property and all the major components of the property. And you also inspect every single unit. Um, so those 30 days are, are your time to confirm everything. And if you find something alarming, something you didn't see beforehand, then that's your time to bring it up to the seller and say, Hey, look, you know, we found, uh, we scoped all the plumbing lines, all the sewer lines, and there's four that are cracked and failing. It's going to cost us $30,000. Um, you know, give us a $30,000 discount on the price. Mm -hmm. So the underwriting period is when you're doing all of your analyzing of, of the investment based on what the information you have or was provided to you by the seller. And then if you get to the point where you're under contract, the due diligence is where you go and then confirm all that information. Um, yeah. And hopefully discover maybe some hidden value, like you said, some value add opportunity that wasn't maybe at the forefront initially. And then as well, on the flip side of that, hopefully discover any, any defects that were maybe overlooked, you know, that could cost you money down the road. Um, yeah, this is really cool stuff. And you, I mean, you keep, I know you keep very busy with all that you do. Um, do you have any projects going right now you could tell us a little bit about, or are you in, in the middle of any one of those stages in the process of an investment right now? Um, we just closed on one a couple of weeks ago and then we're getting ready to close on another. We've already passed due diligence on those. Um, we've passed to, and there's another one that we're working on also that, um, that one's going to be a heavy lift. Um, we did a ton of, we spent a lot, a ton of time on the due diligence because the, the CapEx is going to be, um, very important on that one. I mean, you know, it's very important on every single deal. So to me, the due diligence period is, is one of the most important, um, when it comes to acquiring these, uh, properties because, um, you know, anything that you miss during that period, um, it's going to affect your returns. You know, if you've got to come up with, if you got to spend extra money on your CapEx or, um, you know, you miss something on the, the collections, the collections was a lot less than you thought it was. Um, that's all going to hurt your returns and your projections. Yeah. And not just you, but more importantly, if you're the Jeep, if you're on the GP side, but it can hurt the returns of your investors. So that absolutely. Is, yeah. That's that, what, that responsibility falls more. So when you're the one on, when on the GP side, when you're the one pulling all this together, um, that, that reflects poorly on, on you and that makes it harder to go and repeat the process. So I think I agree with you that that due diligence period is pretty, is a pretty critical step in the process. 
Yeah, so we're very efficient when we when we do the due diligence. We've got our checklist, and we try not to miss anything. Yeah, well, and we and you've touched on it. We didn't we haven't talked a lot about, but the whole capex aspect to it and what that means. Maybe some of our listeners don't aren't as familiar with it. What is, can you tell us about capex and what you met there? Yeah, so um, whenever you're going to acquire one of the one of these assets. Um, you want to make sure that you have the funds necessary to one, bring the property back up to take care of any major structural issues, any deferred maintenance. When I say deferred maintenance is um, items that should be regularly maintained and that the current owner didn't take care of, meaning, you know, you got roof leaks throughout that's deferred maintenance that should have been taken care of, but since they haven't, um, you want to make sure you have the funds to come right in and uh, harden that property, you know, make it uh, take care of the work orders and just make everybody that's there happy and let them know, Hey, we've got a new owner and they're, they're going to take care of us. Um, at the same time, it also includes any upgrades. So if you plan on upgrading half the units, then you want to make sure that you have those funds set aside to upgrade all those units. You know, you can't do that with just the cash flow that's generated from from the asset one you won't be able to pay your investors returns and two you're probably not going to have enough um so i'm glad you brought that up because i do see a lot of investors that kind of leave out the upgrade part of it when they're doing diligence and they're just really worried about the deferred maintenance which you should be but uh at the same time, I, I think you need to be worried about the upgrades and make sure that you have enough money set aside for that. Um, I've seen many times where uh, investor groups don't bring enough to the CapEx and then they've got to come up with a way to bring those funds to, to execute the business plan. Yeah, and then that disrupts the model, the financial model behind it. So from a, yeah. like from a business standpoint, you know, people think maybe that you're listening out there, you've got your your maintenance expense, which you're factoring into your, your monthly cash flow. Well, the CapEx is actually, like you said, it's capital expenditures that are going to go back into the cost basis of the property. So when you're underwriting an investment, that, that money allocated should be raised and factored into the cost of the, the acquisition, almost as if it was part of the, the purchase price. So you need to raise that money and have it accounted for. It's going to go into the initial investment and all the returns that come off of it down the road are going to be compared against that, those capital expenditures in addition to your acquisition costs. So you really do need to separate those two out because if you haven't, and then you go in and you're trying to pull out of the cash flow to, to make up the difference on the things that you didn't do from the capital expenditure standpoint, you may not have any cash flow or your returns are going to be, you know, highly, potentially high, highly diminished. Yeah. Um, you're also going to affect the NOI, which, affects the value of the property at, at, the, at the end of the day that's really what the goal is right mm -hmm. to improve the noi and I, I mean i'd love to sit here and talk to you about this stuff all day <laughs> noi is probably we have we'd have a whole other show on it but uh just real quickly noi and how it, how it represents the value of a property if you could just give us a quick rundown on what that what you meant there yeah i'll, I'll try to do a quick one there i mean you pretty much take all your income that you generate you take all the expenses you have, so not not your capex, like your true maintenance and everything that it takes to run that asset, 
um, and you subtract it from your income and then that's your, your NOI. And then depending on what your cap rate is, you take your cap rate with your NOI and that's going to give you the value of the property. Yeah. And so the cap rate is basically the relationship between the value of the property and the net operating income or NOI ex expressed in a, in a percentage, right? Yeah. So you can compare properties in a similar market that you're looking at if you know what the kind of going cap rates are and you know the NOI of a property in turn you should be able to determine what the value of that property is. Correct. And by improving the NOI or raising the net operating income, even hold, holding and maintaining that same cap rate, when you do the calculation, it increases the value of the property. Yeah, it's, it's if somebody hasn't done the math, I mean, you know, take a uh, hundred unit and you increase that rent by $10. Um, so you take, uh, was it a thousand times 12, 12,000? I think I did that right. <laughs> and you divide it by, let's say, a 6% cap rate. Um, I don't know. I can see it. I, can, I was going to say, I can see everybody out there listening with their calculators on their iPhone. <laughs> I used to be really good at math, man. And then <laughs> uh, calculators got me. So you just increased that property's value by $200,000. Yeah by increasing $10 in rent. Yeah, and that's really when you're, when you're going into these types of investments, that's really what you're after. after the, the, the financials have to work and support themselves, um, you know, for the most part. But that's like you said earlier, that's kind of where the payday is when you either go to and resell it or refinance and return, return the capital. Yep. Um, yeah, this is awesome. This is good stuff. I know you're busy. I don't want to keep you too long. I understand you're a family man as well. You've got, um, you know, health is very important to you. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, that part of your life and kind of what motivates you? And, and for people out there listening, they may be thinking this stuff is so far away from them and so unachievable. But how can people that are listening, you know, get into this or have confidence that they're, they're able to do it. What was it about you that allowed you to do it? And what might be some factors out for other people that could, could do the same? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it all starts with, with mindset. Um, you know, for the most part, I think we're, we're all capable of doing a lot and being very successful. Um, I think you got to win the mindset battle first. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, family. So yeah, I've, I've got three little girls and, and my family's my why a hundred percent. That's what motivates me. Um, and then you talked about also health and fitness um, kind of relates to the same thing. You know, if, if I'm doing this for my family, then I want to be there for them too, as long as I can be. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's easy to kind of forget your own health sometimes, especially when you're um, working very hard. I'm totally a workaholic um, and I have to find that balance and I, and I battle it daily. Um, same with the mindset. You know, I've, I've got to check myself constantly and, and make sure I'm in the right mindset, um, especially nowadays, you know, 2020 has been <laughs> insane. Um, yeah. And it's easy to kind of get down on yourself and, and blame COVID and this and that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you've got to be able to knock that off and just, I always say this, you can only, um, can only control what you can control. Like yeah. all the, the rest, it is what it is. Yeah. 
No, I mean, that's good. I think everybody, whether you're doing large multifamily uh, syndication deals or just dealing with your day job and having to work from home and deal with maybe kids and every other thing. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's always a challenge. And if you want more, you got to take action. You got to take it into your own hands. Cause like you just said, you can't control what you can't control, but you can control what you can control. So mm-hmm. just hanging out on the couch and thinking about all of this stuff, isn't going to get you there. You have to, you have to get up and take action. You got to have that mindset and that confidence and belief that you can. Right. Um, and then if you do all that, you, you just have to go out and make it happen. Well, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really, I'm glad you, you, uh, I'm glad that I had you on with this. If there's so much more to what you're doing right now, if, if our listeners want to connect with you, is there, how can, how can our listeners find more about you or connect with you? Yeah. Um, we've updated our, our website quite a bit, um, lately. So if they go to elevate CIG stands for commercial investment group. So elevate CIG.com. Um, they can find a ton of free content and, um, events and just all kinds of stuff that we're doing. Um, and, uh, if they want to go ahead and send me an email, they can feel free to send me an email at Jorge J O R G E at elevate CIG.com. And I can send over some of the checklists we use for due diligence and some other ones that I have there. Awesome. All right. Sounds good. And I'll, I'll uh, include all those links in the show notes. Um, and you're also on Instagram as well. Is it Jorge multifamily? Yep. Um, okay. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, and that's it for right now. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> no, no, awesome. No TikTok. Yeah, no, it's hard to keep up with it all, but that's awesome. I appreciate you, uh, you know, providing those, those resources to people. I think that's helpful when you're, when you're trying to get started with this stuff. So, so go check out Jorge. Um, I'll have the links in the show notes. He's got some resources for you guys. Jorge, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you, you uh, joining me on the show. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, good luck with everything you're doing and, and hope, hope to have you back sometime. Absolutely, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jorge. And I want to thank everyone out there for joining us on this week's episode of the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Again, we try to release every Wednesday and include a weekly guest to share their real estate investing journey. So hit the subscribe button and rate review us. Uh, also check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Invest Nest. And check out theinvestnest.com. Create your free investor profile and start networking with the other members. Thanks again, everyone. I hope you all had a, a great Thanksgiving. Stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll see you next time on The Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. Thank you for joining us on the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. Be sure to join the investnest.com and start learning and earning today.